I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. To the outside world, she's got it all, but she really doesn't. Personally, I don't have that because I have a six-pack. This man might be wanted by the U.S. government, so she starts moonlighting for him as a spy. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. We're days into the resolutions and the new gym memberships and post-holiday detoxes. And if it's too much work already, a minor fashion revamp could be an easier refresh. In the spirit of New Year, New You, our columnist Brian Francis has been reading style books for men. And in a half hour, he will pass on some tips and tweaks that he's picked up to our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick. Leslie Cruz books don't give advice, but they do offer lessons on how to live. Leslie says her novels celebrate everyday moments and the hours that make up a life. The kind of moments she wanted to create in her own life when she moved to Cape Breton decades ago. Leslie's latest novel is Recipe for a Good Life, and Leslie opens the program today. And to close, I will talk with CBC associate producer and historical fiction fan Talia Cleot. She's got three books she recommends as great New Year's reads. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. The magnetic pull of Canada's East Coast is often the focus of Leslie Cruz fiction. It's something the best-selling author knows well. 45 years ago, she left her hometown of Montreal for the island of Cape Breton and never looked back. But it wasn't until she'd raised a family that she started telling stories inspired by her home. Crew published her first novel, Relative Happiness, in 2005 at the age of 50. It was an instant hit, as were many of her books, which have been named to Indigo's Top 100 and long-listed for Canada Reads. For her latest novel, Crew drew on elements of her own story. Set in the mid-1950s, Recipe for a Good Life centers on a best-selling mystery writer in Montreal who finds herself stuck personally and professionally and sets off for Nova Scotia for a bit of peace and quiet. She gets a lot more than she bargained for. Leslie Crew joins me now from Halifax. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to the next chapter. Hi, Ali. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. This book is a wonderful journey. At the center of the novel is Kitty. She's a 30-something successful writer, but she's hit a bit of a wall. She doesn't think that she can turn out another book in her popular detective series. What's going on with her? Well, I don't even think that she really knows what's going on with her. And to the outside world, she has everything she needs. She's successful. She's married to a, an actor. You know, she's she's got it all, but she really doesn't. She she bugs her editor and says, I, I, you know, I can't do this again. And, of course, the editor panics because she's their meal ticket. So they advise her to go away. And, of course, she ends up in a little place called Homeville, South Head Road, which is two minutes from where I live, Hmm. and uh, in the middle of nowhere. And she thinks, oh, my God, nobody is going to know that I'm here. If I scream, no one will hear me. But, of course, you know, you run into Cape Breton characters, and they turn out to be 
the people that she really needs to hear from. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because this, the, the editor sends her on a writer's retreat and, and uh, <laughs> in her defense, that does conjure up certain images, a, a cozy, peaceful getaway, <laughs> her and her dog. It's definitely not what she expected. What are her, her first impressions and, and how does she, you know, shake things up for people there in this small community? Well, everybody knows, well, thanks to the local gossip who listens in on the party line, everyone knows that she's from Montreal, so everybody's agog waiting for her to show up. Um, she drives for almost three days straight by herself, and she gets to the front of it, and it's like some sort of a little shack, and there's a stove that she has no idea how to, it's a wood stove, she has no idea how to work it, there's no shower. The whole place is not what she... It, 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 doesn't start off very well. <laughs> I should mention for any of our younger listeners who might have tripped up on the words party line, uh, it's not a 1-800 line you call because you're in a lonely space. Uh, <laughs> in, in your life, it is, I guess, 10 houses can be on a, on a phone line together so they don't have to reach people through the operator. Yes. Well, it could be 10 or it can be 20. I mean, it doesn't really matter. Sure. And when the phone rings, if it's, you know, long, short, short, you know that's your family. If it's long, right. short, 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 it's another family. Right. Uh, God forbid there was 20 people on the line like that. I'd wind up answering every single call that comes. I think that's us. Can you imagine? Yeah. I wouldn't be able to handle it now. No. My grandmother had one. I okay. So, you have some experience with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I was always fascinated with it. So This village you've created, you know, as you're alluding to right now, uh, Homeville, Nova Scotia. It's a fictionalized version of a real place. And as you're saying, it happens to be just minutes from where you live. So tell me a little bit more about where you live and, and how it inspires you. Well, I used to come to Cape Breton as a kid. My mother was a kindergarten teacher, so she would bring us down for two months every summer. And for a city kid, that was pretty exciting. And I knew that I wanted to live in Cape Breton. It's exactly like the book. It is very rural. People who would drive by wouldn't know that there's a whole lot going on. But people who have been there have been there forever. And it's just a fantastic place to be. It seems to be what I need. Um, just the scenery, the wildlife. You know, you look out over the sandbar and the next stop is England. So, hmm. I mean, we really are on the very edge of things. Um, it's very slow-paced. And I maybe that's why I can appreciate the more ordinary moments in life because there's no real distractions. We, we mm. don't have a pizza delivery, you know. We, we don't have Ubers. We don't have anything. You just sort of rely on yourself and your neighbors, and that's where this gang comes from. I just wanted to celebrate the women that I grew up with when I was a young wife and mother, and I didn't have family here. And these rural women uh, just took me under their wing and taught me everything I needed to know and I wanted to pay homage to them. So that's sure. why I wrote the book. I grew up in Montreal, and as a young man, I mean, wild horses could not have pulled me out of Montreal, and this, <laughs> this story would have been inconceivable. And you get older, and you're like, God, this sounds fantastic. <laughs> uh, and in fact, there's a character in the novel, midway through the book, talks about how the air feels different on the island. They say it's more filling. What does yes. he mean by that? Well, it actually does. I mean, if you stand at the end of our road and go up on the hill, the wind comes from across the ocean and it hits you. It feels like it's filling you up. There's just something about it. And when it used to happen when we'd come for the summer, you would sleep for hours. <laughs> 
because everybody, my father would say, well, finally we get some air, mm. and it just fills you right up to the brim. I, li- I like that description quite a bit. Uh, our air near where I used to live was quite filling as well, but uh, it was mostly um, airplane fumes that mm-hmm. we were being filled with because we were right by the airport. This is a better filling, definitely. Definitely. Recipe for a Good Life is set in 1955, and it's it's quite a vibrant picture that you paint. The beehive hairdos in <laughs> that, that party line you mentioned, lots of cigarette smoking, mm-hmm. lots of cooking. You're, you were just a baby in the mid-50s. What, what drew you to this era? I love, love writing about this era because there is a lot of smoking. You're always trying to get your characters to do something while they're talking. And there's nothing better than having a cigarette in your hand because people are either blowing smoke in your face or up in the air or being annoyed or stubbing it out. Hmm. It's perfect. And the other thing I just love is that they all had big purses with that click Remember your mother or grandmother's purse? Sure. The click. The clasp. Love that. Yeah. So those are the memories that I have that I like to look back on. It's the same thing when I write about the First World War. I'm with my grandfather and his siblings, like I did with the Spoon Stealer. Now, this era is my mother. And, uh, you know, if I write about the 60s, I'm with my sister, you know, sucking on a popsicle in a Montreal street somewhere. Mm. I'm able to bring back a lot of family memories with these the different um, eras. It's really, all my books are pretty much long-winded diaries, I think. <laughs> this era also has a, a lot of tension around women in the workforce, the 50s. And Kitty publishes mm-hmm. under a, what, what they say, a plausibly male pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And she's married to an actor who dismisses her writing as something she does, quote, when she's bored, unquote. Mm-hmm. How does he, how does her husband deal with his wife's success? Badly. <laughs> He actually mostly ignores it. And uh, yes, he's just something that keeps her out of his way. It's the same thing with um, the Women's Institute. Uh, I went through the Minute Books in 1955. All the women in the Women's Institute signed their names by their husbands' names, Mrs. Mackenzie MacDonald instead of Abby MacDonald. And I did go back and look through those books and put the names of the real members, institute members that I put in the book, I wanted them to get the credit for being themselves. Yeah, let's talk about that Women's Institute. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Bertha, who is, you know, Kitty, Kitty befriends uh, almost mm-hmm. immediately. She's the president of the Homeville Women's Institute in the book. It's a real-life organization that you and other women in your family have been part of over the years. Mm-hmm. And we see in the story the members gather at Bertha's house for a meeting. So tell us what goes on there. Well, yes, I was a member in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, and uh, I was a farm wife that started it and realized that if they were going to ever be able to do anything, they needed to do things together instead of separately. So this group of rural women got together to do good deeds, to um, raise money for different charities. Um, In this case, the Homeville Women's Institute, South Head was a community that the power company would not give them electric power because they said they didn't have enough houses. Now, this was ridiculous to the people who lived there because everybody else had power. So the Women's Institute got together and they harassed the power company, can you imagine? And they just kept it up until the power company backed down and gave them electricity. And I looked at the letter that the community sent to the Women's Institute thanking them for the effort on their Mm. behalf. And just things like that are just 
just blow my mind. Yeah, um, you have a great line that I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, I don't have it top of mind, but it's about, it's amazing what a group of women can do, particularly when they're entrusted with protecting the people they love and, and looking out for their um, for their best interests. Yeah, that well, was that, that encompasses every generation. Yeah. I mean, that's just a woman. <laughs> it's like it's not like a sort of a role. It's just something that I think we've always done. But I think people tend to dismiss women who live in the country is maybe they're not as sophisticated, but they've got something else. We're talking about the organization in general, but I also wanted to focus on Bertha a little bit specifically. Bertha is a, is a homemaker who's raised 10 children. She's very clearly the pillar of her family and community. What did you want to say about women like her? I want to be her. <laughs> I, uh, she was the first character I thought of, actually, because she's a grandmother. And I've recently become a grandmother to two little girls. And it's the biggest joy of my life. And I so envy her having 10 children and having 30 grandchildren and 15 great-grandchildren or whatever she's got. I think, imagine, it's almost like having your own little village. And women like that who can cook anything, you know, fix anything, entertain the kids, work on around the farm, not everybody can do that nowadays. And yeah, sure, she didn't look uh, the height of fashion or anything else, but the thing is she's got everything she needs. Yeah. This is a very impressive figure. And you mentioned her her cooking, which on its mm. own was so impressive. It, by the way, if anybody's going to read this book and be like, <laughs> Don't this will yeah, keep me out of the kitchen, uh, it'll probably send you right back into your kitchen. There is a lot of mouth-watering food. You, I was constantly craving macaroons. I don't even eat macaroons. I'm like, why am I now kind of marketing? Is this sponsored by Big Macaroon? Tell me how you see the role of food in this story and, and, and maybe in life in general. Well, Bertha, that's her language of love. But I think you'll find that in Cape Breton and the Maritimes anyway. We all sort of sit around the kitchen table drinking tea and having scones and oat cakes. And it's just a big part of our culture. So for Bertha, this is how she fills people up. And I think that's fascinating. I think that's um, a marvelous thing to do. It's like, I mean, we all know, yes, we send food over when someone dies and, and whatever, but... She also sustains people in, it doesn't have to be a time of need. It just needs to be, let's do something nice. I remember meeting an Indian chef once who turned me on to that. Like, what does it take for you to buy, you know, a few extra bananas so you can make one extra loaf of (laughs) banana bread so you can give it to somebody who you know would appreciate it in your apartment building? It just kind of blew my mind. I'm like, why don't I think like this? This is unbelievable. (laughs) Uh, And those who do are, are just, you know, Great grand souls. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get back to your protagonist, Kitty. She winds up embracing that community in Cape Breton that kind of shocks her at the beginning, and so much so that she begins to question her life in Montreal. Mm -hmm. So how does she start to see things differently? Well, I think she realizes this big family makes her realize that all is not well in her world in Montreal, and she needs to go back and pay attention to the little family that she does have. It might only have a couple of people in it, but it's hers. Mm. And she needs to go back and um, figure out how she's going to merge these two worlds of hers. So that's why it's a, a recipe for a good life is maybe not conventional. And all of us, all of us have a recipe for our lives. And it doesn't have to look like anybody else's. But it needs to fit and it needs to be good for us. 
In, in Cape Breton, Kitty forms this special friendship with Bertha's son, Wallace, and he's this big, sensitive guy who shares her love of animals. He, he, he could not be more different from her husband. <laughs> Without giving too much away, can you talk about their connection and maybe their influence on each other? The word good is very important to Wallace. He lived through the war. Um, he thinks deeply. He's someone who's always sort of kept himself to himself. He's the only one of his siblings that never married. And um, he loves his life just the way it is, even though everybody thinks that, oh, well, poor Wallace, you know, he's not married. He doesn't have a family. Well, he's got 30 nieces and nephews. He doesn't need any more kids in his life. And, you know, Kitty comes roaring up with this so-called fabulous life of hers. And he's someone that is easy to talk to, and her husband is not easy to talk to. Hmm. Um, you know, you, you mentioned he's easy and he's, he's you know, deeply content with his life, but his <laughs> contentment is shaken up a little bit because Kitty in Cape Breton finds the inspiration to write again, and Wallace, he's, he's critical. Well, he's, he's mm-hmm. critical of how she portrays his community on the page. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, I wanted to ask you if you related to that, this idea of writing for entertainment while still honoring a real place. Is it a struggle to strike that balance? Um, sometimes it is. I mean, it is hard. Like, you have to be very careful when you write about a small community. Fortunately, I usually write lovely things. <laughs> like, I, I always look for the good in everything. And obviously, I have readers who absolutely love these stories and what they love about them is the ordinary moments that just that's life it's just i'm just describing ordinary moments and i think in the world that we live in now is so scary it's just a matter of a lot of people just like to open the book and take a couple of hours and just be with people to remind i want my books to remind people that there's still so much one you know wonderful things in the world and things that you can enjoy like hanging up clothes like being a grandmother, like wearing an apron. I mean, all the stories my grandmother told me, my mother. I'm trying to remind people that all these things still remain. Hmm. And uh, and people respond to that because they'll say, oh, my gosh, that was, you know, that was my life. That was my childhood. Um, it's very humbling. It, it's just been, it's been quite a journey. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Throughout this novel, Kitty is searching for her, you know, quote, recipe for a a good life, unquote. Mm -hmm. And as Bertha says, sometimes the simplest recipe is the best. I wanted to ask you what ingredients are in your good life cake? Oh, gosh. You know what? I think I've pretty much got them all. So I'm incredibly lucky. I've been with the same man for 50 years or more. That's a huge part of it. Uh, I was able to stay home with my kids, which is what I wanted to do, even though my friends at university thought I was all nuts. Um, I had the love of two parents. My dad, my dad was a writer, and uh, he he never got to know that I became a writer. He had early Alzheimer's, and uh, that took his words and his voice Mm, and his beautiful handwriting. And I'm so thrilled. Like, I, I wanted to call him up to tell him I was going to be on this show. Hmm. And he's been dead for almost 20 years. But, I mean, I have everything I need. The other night, I couldn't sleep, and I got up at 5 in the morning, and I went out, and there was the crescent moon, and Venus was right beside it, and the stars were out. And I thought, how incredibly lucky I am to be here in the middle of this peaceful, peaceful place when the rest of the world is on fire. Hmm. 
I don't take those things for granted. And so when I put the things down in my book, I think the readers realize that I'm not taking them for granted either. You can have your cake and eat it too. Yes, indeed. Very nice to chat with you, Leslie, and thank you so much for the book. Well, thank you, Allie. It means a lot to me. Thanks so much. Leslie Crew is the author of Recipe for a Good Life, and she spoke to me from Halifax. Hi, I'm Andy Mays from Sky Diggers, and um, we are a uh, an acoustic uh, folk rock band from the city of Toronto, and um, we have been together for 30 years. We've released uh, close to 30 recordings, and I am reading and rereading In the Skin of a Lion, the fantastic work by Michael Andachi. And as a, a Torontonian, it made me look at the city in a way that I had never looked at it before. You know, I'd been across, say, the Prince Edward Viaduct hundreds of times, um, the Bloor Street Viaduct. I had never really looked at it. I'd driven up the Don Valley Parkway underneath it dozens, if not hundreds of times, and I had never looked at it. I had never looked up at it. I had noticed the structure before because it's quite an elegant structure. But then to read in in the book about the construction, um, both historical figures and fictional figures, but but the romance of it, of of immigrants to the city, building the city. There are all sorts of characters in the book that come and go. That that you know, and the writing is so beautiful, and yet at the same time, the book is so well researched. And there's such imagination that goes into uh, creating characters that both have a basis in fact, and, but but also drift off into fiction, into a a world that I don't know. I just I just find that uh, Michael Andache creates such incredible stories and worlds, which you just get lost in. Dog-eared. Dog-eared. The books that never get old. Hi, I'm Charlene Carr, the author of Hold My Girl, and a book that I have reread at multiple times is Hugh McLennan's The Watch That Ends the Night. For me, McLennan's story of love and friendship and loss is like sinking into a dream or sailing along the water, gently rocked and comforted by the beauty of his words and the depth and compassion of his writing. It's been about a decade since I've read it, but it was still the first book I thought of when asked about a book I liked to return to, and it put a yearning in me to read it again. I recall it as the type of book that each time you go back to it, having aged and learned more of life, you're bound to get more from it. Although my guess is that now if I went back, some aspects of it that thrilled and inspired me no longer would, I'm confident the writing would still hold strong and amaze me with its beauty. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. 
Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julie Tamaki. And I'm Rico Tamaki, and we are the authors of Roaming. And you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio One. My colleague Ryan B. Patrick added to his family a few months ago with a new baby. And speaking from experience, I know that is tough on anyone's grooming routine. Plus, Ryan's been out and about these past months doing stage interviews and going to book launches and prize events. And not to say that clothes make the man, but Ryan was more than happy to get some advice from our hands-on columnist, Brian Francis. So here are Brian and Ryan, sounding like a 60s pop duo, with a chat about style. Before we go into the books, I know you brought some books here today. Tell me about your attitude to style and fashion. Well, it's something that, as I've gotten older, is certainly evolving, right? Because your body changes. Mm. And so I'm at a stage in my life where I'm looking at myself saying, am I dressing too young? Like, sometimes I look at what I'm wearing and I say, this is what I wore when I was 20. And is that okay? Because I'm I'm over 50 now. But then I'm also not ready to jump into my dad years. Like I think about my dad at my age and he was kind of wearing the Arnold Palmer Sears sets, you know, with the the rugby pants and the plaid shirts. I'm like, I don't want to go there yet either. So I'm in, I feel like I'm in a bit of state of flux, which is why I think these books were informative for me to understand where I'm at in Mm. terms of my style evolution at the ripe old age that I am today. So your fashion is very fluid is what you're saying. Uh, Well, it kind of has to be, yes. And it has to be very loose fitting. Let's just say that much too. (laughs) (laughs) But you look really put together today. You're wearing like like a crew net sweater. I am. Maybe some chinos or or khakis or what have you. Um, Because we're sitting in the the studio today, can I get a fashion check in terms of how do I look? I like it. I like the shirt. The shirt's buttoned up. To me, that's a statement. Like the glasses, I think you're well put together. Nice, nice. You did that really concisely. Well, listen, you have a look, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like, You need to kind of just find what works for you Mm. and then stick to it. But I also think, and I'm guilty of this myself, also take some risks too, right? Do something a little bit different, even if it's kind of out of your comfort zone, because I think that's kind of what style is all about too. Nice. So speaking of style, you always bring us three books. So let's start. What's first on the list? So the first book I'm going to talk about is called Naturally Tanned by Tan France. So listeners might be familiar with the name Tan France because he's the style guru on the Netflix show Queer Eye. Mm, Um, And his book is like a memoir and it talks about his experiences growing up uh, in the UK as a queer man of color, but also it expands a little bit in terms of like his fashion advice. And so that was something that I was looking for. I mean, listen, these style gurus, they're all over television. They're, you know, proclaiming this is in fashion and this is not. So it can be a little bit intimidating. But I found his style to be very, you know, kind of laid back. He had some good advice and stuff that I took away uh, from was just like he was sort of saying, like, when you shop for retail, 
nobody is ever created equally. So don't get discouraged. You're never going to find the perfect pair of jeans. Uh, take as many pairs of jeans as you can into the change room and try them on and see what works for you. Nice. But the problem is, with, and I don't know about you, but I hate shopping for pants because pants are just like the most boring thing you can buy because you buy the pants and then you have to bring the pants home and then you wash the pants and then you have to take the pants to get hemmed. A lot and, involved here. And there's like a month goes by before you actually wear the pants. And I never get excited about wearing pants the way I would maybe a, like a new shirt or a sweater or a jacket or something. So, but... You need to wear pants. Yeah. Everybody needs to wear pants at some point, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like figuring out what kind of works for you. Now, he does talk a little bit about the waist of pants okay. on men. And this is a really controversial point, especially for me, because as you get older, you should be wearing a higher, like a, what they call a natural waist, mm. for, especially for men specifically. And I have been scarred, I think, growing up, certainly in the 70s, where there was a lot of male relatives who wore their pants up to, I would say, their upper rib cage, you know? <laughs> and so that memory lives in my mind. And for me, that's that sign that I've crossed the threshold, right? The, the older I get, the, the higher my pants right, get. Yeah. But the, basically what he's saying is, you know, that it sort of smooths you out. And you shouldn't be wearing belts. That's another thing he says. Because if your pants fit properly, you don't need a belt. So I think, you know, listen, I think we need to figure out what our comfort zone is in terms of where our, our pants should sit. But Tan saying in another book that I read also is saying your pants should be sitting around your navel, the waist of your okay. pants. Because the other thing is that, you know, as you get older, you sort of fill out a little bit more. And when you wear the low cut pants, it just kind of, you get that muffin top effect. Yeah, now, yeah. personally, I don't have that because I have a six pack. But as you get older, for some people, unfortunately, no, I totally do. I'm like a complete muffin top. And so I think you have to be, work with your changing body as right. well. So Queer Eye is like an institution. It, it's very influential. Yep. And this is the memo by Tan France, the style guy on the show. What did you learn from him from reading this book? Um, I learned that to work with your body type, that it doesn't have to be this, fashion doesn't have to be this expensive thing, which I think is a lot of times what people associate it with. I think there's a difference between being fashionable and having a good sense of style. And for me, style is always about your personal expression of how you wear your clothes and what looks good on you, but also to reassess the clothing choices that I make, mm. like this, to my earlier point about the pants, I think it's it's something where if I've been wearing my pants low for the past 30 years and my body is not the same as it was when I was 20, maybe it's time that I reassess the fit of my clothes a little bit more so that I'm adjusting the clothes to go with my changing body as opposed to trying to look like I'm trying to look 30 years younger. Nice. Key learnings. Key, key learnings. Key Work learnings. with your body and just accept <laughs> that time is going to march across, have its way across your body, and you just best dress for it as far as I'm concerned. And the name of that book again? It is called Naturally Tan. Awesome. So what's next on your list? So next is uh, a book called Ten Garments Every Man Should Own by Pedro Mendez. So Pedro is regularly heard on mm -hmm. CBC Radio, yep. uh, writing and hosting documentaries about men's style, and he's the author of the blog uh, The Hogtown Rake. So the premise behind his book is to buy less. And the reason for buying less clothing is that it mitigates certain negative factors when it comes to the production of clothing. So if you buy higher quality clothing, it lasts longer, and therefore you offset the environmental impact of mm. buying multiple cheap pieces of clothing as well. Yeah. And also he embraces this idea of the one-in-one-out system. So case in point, I was out on the weekend at Uniqlo, and yes. I saw a plaid shirt that I liked. I bought the plaid shirt. I bought the plaid shirt home. I put it with my other seven plaid shirts. And now I have seven plaid shirts, which is too many plaid shirts. So his <laughs> idea is like before you buy anything new, you have to get rid of one thing. 
So my, what I should have done, unless I'm willing to get rid of one of my plaid shirts, I should not be buying a, another plaid shirt. Yeah. So again, that kind of minimizes the, this buying and this excessiveness, I think, sometimes that people have or impulse buying, that in order to sort of maintain your wardrobe, pick quality pieces and get rid of one thing for every new thing that you bring into your closet, which mm. I thought made a lot of sense too, because it does sort of put it into perspective in a lot of ways. And you save on making those impulse purchases that fall apart within a a couple of weeks or a couple of years or whatever, and then uh, you're just making smarter choices about the clothes you buy. Right. So if Pedro Mendes recommends 10 items every man should own, what if I don't have all 10? Like how many of the recommended items can you check off? Uh, well, they're pretty basic. Like he's, you know, shoes. But it's about the quality of the shoes. Right. So he's sort of saying, like, look at the the quality of the leather, you know, the fit. Make sure that you're being very precise about the decisions that you make. Don't be, again, not to be impulsive. He also is a big fan of hats. And this is something that... And I'm not talking like ball caps, which we'll get into in a minute, but okay. we're talking like dress hats. Like he is a big advocate for that, you know, obviously it was once in style for men to wear hats. And if you wear a suit, then put on that dress hat, that felt dress hat and wear it confidently. But he says, you know, a lot of men don't wear them because they don't see a lot of other men wearing dress hats. But he says also, look, hats are practical. Like they, there's nothing better to keep the sun out of your face or the rain, you know, off your face. And a, a, a brimmed hat. Hmm. is your best defense against the elements. But I, I can't do it. And I'm at the age, too, where when I used to put on a hat when I was younger, I'd be like, oh, I look kind of cuteness or whatever. Like, <laughs> I, I can rock this look. I put on the hat now, and I just like I just see my father, which is not like it's <laughs> yeah. bad. Like It's not like I'm, I'm upset about looking like my dad. But it's at the same time, you just kind of see your face, and it just looks uh, – there's something yeah. about a hat that just seems to kind of age – but Pedro is a big advocate for hats. And I think certainly for people who um, are looking to protect their, if they have thinning hair, like hats are a necessity too, mm -hmm. right? In terms of like the sun and everything else. So maybe we'll see a return if Pedro has his way of the fedora or the dress hat. I don't know. Maybe men might start embracing it more, but I still have yet to see it happen on the subways. I'm partial to a nice fedora. Yeah. I've tried them on, but it just sits on the top of my head and it just doesn't look right. And like you said, you look like your father. And I yeah. don't know that's something, <laughs> a look that you want to go for. Or like or like you should be talking like in a 1940s style. Too. Yeah. Like, say, like, kids, hey. what's going on here? Right. Or whatever. <laughs> like You're kind of like putting on this persona. I just don't want to go there myself. It feels kind of dated. But at the same time, these are classic looks. So, Brian, I know you are a hands-on reporter and you take your assignments seriously. Did mm -hmm. you try out any of the advice? in this book? Uh, yeah. So actually in Tan's book, Tan recommends, um, he has this facial, uh, that uh, mask that he recommends and it's it's Greek yogurt and you take a green tea and you steep it for one minute and then you cut open the bag and you mix the tea leaves in with the yogurt. Mm. So I tried it the other night uh, because, I, hey, listen, if it works, if it takes a few years off my face, I'm all for that. But it's a half a cup of yogurt. So I don't <laughs> think you realize how much a half a cup of yogurt is until you actually put a half a cup of yogurt on your face. And I was smearing it on because of the uh, green tea, it looked like I had sour cream and ch like onion kind of chip mm. dip on my face. It made me want to <laughs> use a cracker to kind of start peeling away at it. And I was dripping everywhere. Right. So if you do this, I mean, my face felt pretty good afterwards. But if you do this at home, I think you need to wear a bib, some kind of like plastic sheet, put a shower and don't go anywhere. Like yeah. Just remain stationary in your bathroom or whatever you do, because I was paranoid I was going to drip it all over the sofa. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't. But just be careful. Half right. a cup of yogurt is a lot of substance to put on your face. So listen, what, however you, whatever beauty treatments you, you aspire to, I think certainly try the, the yogurt and green tea mixture. It, it made my face feel really good nice, afterwards. Nice and dewy. But I, I think it was more about I was just glad to get a half a cup of yogurt off my face. Oh, That's what made it feel so good. <laughs>
<laughs> so the next book you want to recommend today? So the last book uh, I'm recommending is called Caps, One Size Fits All by Stephen Bryden. And this is sort of an in-depth look at the cult of ball caps. And listen, ball caps are as in fashion as they ever were. I mean, if, if nothing, they, they sort of, he traces the history from sort of the functional purposes of ball caps to the, the style icons that they are now and the variety of uses and the variety of styles that are out there and certainly the brands. So it's more of a picture book. So there's, for anybody that's really into ball caps, this is a good uh, option for them. Um, he talks to cap connoisseurs and icons of the cap fashion. Um, he talks about the design and the construction of hats. He also peeks into the closets of some hat collectors as well, just to see what they're interested in. So this is kind of the opposite of what Pedro. So Pedro's talking about dress hats and yeah, fedoras and everything. Fedoras. And then this is sort of the other side of it, which is the ball cap, which I don't think anybody has any issues wearing at all ever, because they are just, they're a staple uh, for men and women. And I think it's one of those items that just goes with anything. You can dress it up, you can dress it down. There's just no limits yeah. to it. And the nice thing about hats, as well as shoes, I find, is that if you put on a little weight, doesn't matter. The hat still fits. Uh, you know, it's like a, a, a handbag or whatever. That it, you, It's never dependent on whether or not what, if you had a bag of chips the night before. Yeah. It's just it always fits. So hats are always a nice kind of fashion accessory, I find. Nice. It sounds like a really nice deep dive into the subject matter, I guess. Do ball caps ever go out of style? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it depends. I think trucker hats kind of went away for a while, and then they came back kind of big. Like, I remember there was this trucker hat kind of phase where everybody was going through, and I still think trucker hats are still around. So one of the things that I tried to do is, uh, so during COVID, so, so to tie it back to my own personal experiences, I didn't get into the sourdough thing like a lot of people did. So I went with, with the lockdown and everything. But I, I, I fell into a, um, an eBay wormhole. And this is kind of what happens to me. I'll have a glass of wine on a Friday night. And the next thing I know, a couple of days later, <laughs> some obscure does. thing is arriving at my house. I'm like, why did I get this? But I started shopping for badges. And I was looking for like vintage badges um, and just kind of funny saying badges. And I would order them and they would come in. And they're fairly cheap to buy. And then I wasn't sure what to do with them. Like, what do I do with this badge? Do I put it on my knapsack? Do I put it on my jacket? And then I thought, I'm going to sew it onto baseball hats. Like, okay. So I started buying blank baseball hats or, you know, there, there was no anything on them. And I started sewing these badges on. So now I have my own line. Not really. But anyway, I have my own line in my closet of my own customized hat. So nice. I have one of Miss Piggy with a Miss Piggy badge on it. I have a Beaver Lumber uh, hat as well. I have a, a hat with a badge on it that says Bowlers Do It in the Alley. And I <laughs> <laughs> and there's an apostrophe S on the Bowlers. And I think that is probably what I love most about it. So it's a Bowlers apostrophe S, Do It in the Alley. That's, Got it. That to me, that makes a work of Chef's art. Chef's kiss. Yeah. Um, and so um, I, for me, they're one of a kind creations. Nobody that I know is currently walking around with a beaver lumber hat. I mean, maybe they are, but this is my hat. Mm. So one of the things I wanted to do for you, because it's the first time okay. we're meeting, was to create something unique for you as well. Okay. So I am here to present you with one of my one-of-a-kind original hats. Oh and I hope goodness. you like it. This has been, again, handmade by yours truly. Oh, my goodness. So it's got an owl on it with a nice. let's read. It's a I black thought. ball cap with an owl reading a book, and the badge says let's read and it looks very stylish. I think it's, it's, it's my a, color. Listen, if you <laughs> it, it it'll protect you from the from the elements. It sends a positive message to anybody who sees you out and about. <laughs> At the grocery store, you'll be promoting literacy and reading to everybody. This is awesome. And I can tell you right now, nobody else, probably in the entire world, has that exact exact hat. Amazing. I will cherish this hat, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah. it. Thank you for the fashion boost and thanks for doing all the hard work. Thank you for having me today. 
That was our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, in conversation with Next Chapter columnist Brian Francis. Brian recommended three books on men's style and fashion, and those titles are on our website, cbc.ca, The Next Chapter. Historical fiction is an ever-popular genre for readers. It's right up there with mysteries and sci-fi. And our colleague Talia Kliot started reading it when she was a little girl, and she still likes that kind of literary time travel. Talia happily obliged when we asked her to do some of that travel for us. She's an associate producer at CBC Books, and she joins me today to recommend three historical fiction books. Hi, Talia. Welcome to the next chapter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, take me back to when you first started reading historical fiction. What are your sort of gateway reads as you entered this genre? So I was actually obsessed with the Dear Canada books as a kid. I don't know if you're familiar. They have these like colorful covers and a picture of a young girl. They're often like a diary. And I was like, I could not stop reading them. And like as a young girl, I really was able to identify with Mm. the other characters. Uh, like the people in the book. And I was always thinking, you know, what would it be like if I had to live through a global pandemic? And now I actually know the answer to that, but uh, certain other things as Dear well. Canada knew the future. My goodness. Uh, that is what appealed to you then, these type of books. What appeals to you now? Um, I think a lot of it is being able to put yourself in the shoes of someone else who's gone through a different experience. And it's also like about the shared humanity Um you know, just because you lived in a different time and had different experiences, you still feel love, friendship, heartbreak, grief, all of that. Um, it's just so interesting to see how it goes through time. All right. Well, tell me about the uh, the first book on your list today. What is it? Learn by Heart by Emma Donahue. Okay. So Emma Donahue is a name uh, many people will know, best known for the, the novel uh, Room. But unlike that novel, most of her books have been historical fiction. People don't know that, and it's something that she's very good at. What story does she dive into in uh, in Learn by Heart? So it's a story about um, a boarding school, and it's a historical romance set in the early 1800s. There are two 14-year-old girls, um, the orphaned biracial heiress uh, Eliza and the tomboy troublemaker Anne Lister. It's a brilliantly crafted love story with really sharp and sparkling dialogue, um, really gets into, you know, the shenanigans of boarding school, but also with deeper themes and really interesting historical context as well. Okay, so before we dive into that deeper historical context um, and, and the point of view of this book, can you tell us a little bit about this historical figure, Anne Lister, because that's a real life historical figure, right? Yeah, it's kind of the coolest thing I find. She's uh, she's dubbed as often like known as the the first modern lesbian, and she chronicled her entire life story in a five million word diary that kind of only began to see the light of day recently. She talks about everything from life and society to her many relationships with women, and because of those, the contents were deemed scandalous and improper, and it wasn't really like. Uh, shown to the world until pretty recently. And she even wrote the diary in codes at some point. So there's a whole slew of code breakers around the world who are, you know, 
um, interpreting what she had to say and translating it so people could read it now. So the interesting thing is that there's 5,000 plus words written by her, but the um, the story is told by Eliza, right? The roommate. So you went to see uh, you went to see Emma Donahue talk recently. Mm-hmm. She she spoke about that. Why did she think it was important to tell the story from Eliza's perspective? I think like the first like for the technical reasons, it gave uh, Emma Donahue like an avenue for creativity. You know, you have all these words written by Anne Lister and by showing another perspective, you have more creativity to create the character to come up with different storylines and um, just like stuff like that. But also she really felt the need to tell Eliza's story and kind of understand the isolation she would have felt as a biracial woman or teenager growing up in this mostly white English countryside and, you know, just the feeling of being torn between two places that she felt and then on top of it being a woman who loves other women. And we should mention that Anne Lister has been in the pop culture zeitgeist recently because of this show called Gentleman Jack. Is that right? Anne Lister is a character in that show? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, uh, Emma Donoghue actually wrote her first play about Anne Lister. So I think maybe because Gentleman Jack was now kind of popularized, maybe that's what led her to kind of go in to learn by heart even more. Okay. All right. What's next on your recommended list? Uh, Let Us Descend by Jasmine Ward. Okay. Jasmine Ward, major American writer. She's won the National Book Award twice. And then this new novel, Let Us Descend, is an Oprah book club pick. We don't talk about Oprah enough on this show. Uh, What world does Jesmond take us into in this novel? So she takes us to the U.S. South before the Civil War. Um, It's the story of Annis, a young girl, a young woman who grows up enslaved on a rice field in one of the Carolinas. Her father is actually the white master of the house, and then she gets sold to the South and has to survive a miles-long march and then has kind of quite brutal existence on a uh, Louisiana sugar plantation. But throughout it, she finds strength um, through memories of her mother and her grandmother and also the kind other enslaved people that she meets along the way. That title, Let Us Descend, is incredibly evocative. What is that uh, referring to or what is that significant of? Sure. Well, it's actually uh, taken from Dante's Inferno. And I think because of, you know, the hellscapes and the the horrible and like painful descriptions that are throughout the book, um, it really, it really does feel like you're descending into hell. Um, but also, the descriptions are so so detailed. You also see the beauty of nature and of like the landscape that she's walking through, and kind of this terrible power and terrible beauty melding together. You know, the story of slavery is something many of us will have read. Many times, and and you know, it's been told with with great power and emotion in the past. What lens does uh, Jasmine Ward apply to this story? So she kind of actually takes a magical realism approach. Annis has numerous discussions and altercations with the spirit world. Some of them help her. They confuse her. They let her down. They really they want her belief and their support. And they're kind they're extra characters in the book. Um, And also, you kind of get a look into African mythology through stories of her warrior grandfather, which is something that, like, I never really learned about before. So it was a really interesting perspective to the story. Very interesting. And what is the final book on the list today? The Jazz Club Spy by Roberta Rich. The Jazz Club Spy. Gotta love a spy story. What time period is this and 
Who is the uh, the protagonist? So um, it, it takes us back to 1930s New York, and Giddy Brodsky uh, is the protagonist. She works as a cigarette girl. Um, her family fled a, d- a deadly pogrom in Russia, and now they live in New York in a tenement, and they're kind of you know scraping to get by. She's smart. She's driven and very stubborn. But one day she recognizes a man on the streetcar who she recognizes from the pogrom of of that happened to her family and community in Russia, and she's determined to get justice. So she enlists the help of a regular at the jazz club um, who happens to be the director of the Department of Immigration at Ellis Island. And he kind of tells her that this man might be wanted by the U.S. government, so she starts moonlighting for him as a spy. Um, But soon she kind of finds herself in the middle of a conspiracy because, you know, as every great spy book, no one (laughs) is as they seem. So this is, you know, just leading up to World War II, and the main character you mentioned is they're, they're relatively new immigrants to New York, escaping, um, you know, um, violence, poverty. Why does the character hold so much re- resonance for you? Um, well, my grandparents are bo- are all immigrants from Russia, um, Lithuania, all fleeing the same type of anti-Semitism, some the Holocaust, some earlier anti-Semitism. So for me, hearing the stories of their immigrant experience after that really was very similar to what I saw in the book. And that really just, yeah, it really like resonated and was just an important experience that I like to see shared. And also on a lighter note, there are some really, really great Yiddish phrases hmm. included throughout the book, which I loved because my grandfather always tries to teach me little Yiddish phrases. So I, I thought they were pretty accurate. I'll have to actually test them with him and see um, if I'm doing a good job. But it was it was quite a nice touch that I appreciated. That's great. The theory goes that, you know, historical fiction uh, has something to say about not just history, but also about today. Now, you brought books that have taken us from the 19th century uh, English countryside to 1930s New York, as you just described. Did the present play in your in your mind, besides you connecting with your grandfather on the Yiddish, <laughs> did, it, did the present play in your mind in these three books? Yeah, I think definitely, like, even from the way, like, Eliza and Learn by Heart is, you know, straddled between two feelings, two cultures. I think that's something that can really resonate. I mean, just the kind of reverberations in the current iterations of anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism were definitely at the forefront of my mind while I was reading these books. Um, and like, you know, learning from history, hopefully hopefully, we're learning from history and we'll create a better world no matter how cheesy that sounds. From your lips to God's ears, Talia. <laughs> Thanks very much, Talia. Thank you so much for having me. Talia Kliot is an associate producer at CBC Books. That is it for our show today. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. And my thanks this week to Katie Swales, Emily Chiarvezio, Olivia Pascarelli, and Joseph Shamoon, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, the artistic polymath Gary Barwin. He's a writer, musician, and artist, and I'll speak with him about his fascinating and funny new essay collection, Imagining Imagining. And our columnist Alicia Cox-Thompson will bring us three books 
that she promises will take you through the heaviest snowstorms of the season. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.